0: You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ.
1: All right, good to see everyone tonight. Welcome to Heaven and Hell and Everything in Between. I don't know about you, but the song that's been going through my head all day is, it's the end of the world and you know it right that's gonna yeah REM yeah so that'll be our conversation tonight so hopefully everybody's had a coffee even online Um, we're gonna get started i just want to um say a couple things just as we get started And one is, um, we're we're rearranging the schedule a little bit. We have, I know, so those of you who love order, this is gonna throw you off a little bit. So, um, Lord willing, the next uh, three weeks are gonna look as follows. Next week, I'm going to be doing some teaching on, um, yeah, you have to, yep okay, yeah, I think uh, next week what we're gonna be doing is we'll I'm gonna be doing some teaching on some of the lingering questions about um, like what about those who've never heard like that's a big one um, what uh we'll talk about the Old Testament believers we'll talk about um the scope of salvation, all those kind of lingering questions is what we're going to look at next week. The following week, we have uh, Pastor Marty coming in, and she's going to do something on spiritual warfare, on angels, demons, spiritual warfare, and the whole unseen reality, which will be a really interesting topic. And then, for our final week, what we thought we'd do is this. Every week I get 13,000 emails (laughs) asking questions. Uh, We're getting lots of questions and so I know there's a lot of lingering questions. So what I thought we'd do is we'd have a panel. Yeah, that's a good idea, right? We'll have a panel and what we'll do is we'll take all the lingering questions and answer every single one of them satisfactorily, yeah, in, in a perfect way so that you all leave happy, right? (laughs) And so that's what we're going to do. So we'll have a panel discussion at the end. And uh, so if you have questions that you don't think that have been fully answered or you still want to, you know, dive into, send me an email. I will compile them and we'll put together a list of your questions at the end. And then we'll also have an open opportunity to ask more questions. Does that sound good? You have a question? Yes. Um, it's on March 6th, is it the 6th? Thanks. Yeah, March 6th. So that's the last 5th? Whatever the Tuesday in the first week in March is, that's when we'll be meeting. Okay, the (laughs) 5th, yes. So that'll be our last session together. And so it'll just be a a panel discussion. Sound good? Okay, are you ready to find out everything about the end of the world? Are you ready? Okay all right Mike answer all the questions. (laughs) Yes I'll answer every single question that people have raised
0: for 2,000 years. It surprisingly only took me a few minutes and if you believe any of that I have some beachfront property in the North Pole to sell you. Let's open in prayer. Lord we come before you and uh, we acknowledge that we are looking into your word and yet there are still things that are a mystery to us. And so we ask that Holy Spirit, you would speak through your scripture, that you'd speak through, um, you'd speak through me and that you'd speak through all of us here tonight, God. And we just ask that you would reveal what you wish to reveal. And if you wish to keep things a mystery, God, that you would help us to be content with that. Uh, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right. so. I figured I would start with a couple little uh, stories, a couple little vignettes about myself um, that actually do speak into what we're going to be looking at today. The first one is a habit that I have that drives my wife absolutely bonkers. And my habit is this, whenever a new movie comes out, or a new TV show comes out, or a book comes out, I go out of my way to ruin it for myself. And the way I do that is, if it's a movie or a TV show, I'll go online and I will read the entire synopsis of it before I go and either watch the, the movie or the TV show. Yeah, people are groaning, yes. This is the response my wife has, why do you do this to yourself? If it's a new book, I will read the last chapter first. Yes, and then I'm thrown out of the church. (laughs) The reason I do this is because I hate surprises. I want to know everything that happens before I invest in a particular story. I want to know the beginning, the middle and the end. I want to know the ins and outs. I want to know who lives and who dies. I want to know any jump scares or any plot twists. I want to know it all before I go into it. And so that's what I do. That's the first one. The second story deals with uh, a movie that I watched uh, twice when I was a child and this movie is one that uh, some of you might be familiar with. It's called A Thief in the Night and I watched it for the first time uh, at my parents church and I think I was somewhere between six uh, to eight years old. It was up in Prince George where we lived at the time and uh and they took me to that and the movie started and honestly i mean it was 40 years ago and all i remember is that i was terrified i don't think i lasted 15 to 20 minutes in that movie before mom and dad uh took me out was good, but I still had nightmares about that movie for weeks afterwards. And for those of you who don't know what the movie is, uh, it's a fictional uh, retelling of, well, not retelling, a fictional uh, representation of what they thought that the end of time might look like when, when Jesus comes and, and takes all the Christians up to earth. And so it's this one woman who gets effectively left behind. And as a six-year-old, I just found that terrifying. The second time I watched it, I was 15, and we had now moved down to the Lower Mainland, and the youth pastor in my church um, suggested that the entire youth uh, group watch it. And uh, my parents had the largest basement, so we all went into the basement, and Dad put it onto the VHS player and started it. And I remember being a little apprehensive, because I remembered the uh, response that I had had when I was a kid. And then the movie started. And I just started laughing. And I couldn't stop laughing. And I had a friend of mine who went through a very similar experience, and he was laughing too. And we just started mocking that, and quite frankly, the movie was of a very low, low budget. I mean, this is the 70s. I think it was a 50 grand or something like that. And so the special effects were not up to my, uh, up to my caliber as a 15 year old who had watched a bunch of Hollywood blockbusters. The, the The dialogue was pretty, pretty bad. The acting was bad. And so I just started mocking it. My youth pastor really wanted to get a dialogue going and he kept on telling my friend and I, he's like, you guys need to be quiet, let everyone watch the movie. And I got about to the halfway point and he's like, alright, so this isn't working, Mike, you and your friend, upstairs. And I'm like, it's, it's my house. Like you can't, you're, you're booting me out of the basement? He's like, yep. I was like, okay, well, now I have to go upstairs and explain to mom and dad why I'm not downstairs. I don't actually remember how that conversation went, but I do remember what happened when the youth pastor came at the end of the night. He was quite gracious about it. He was like, Mike, the reason I booted you out is because it's not that I necessarily agreed with everything that was in the movie, but I wanted to have a discussion about these things. This was, I figured a way that the kids could connect and, and we could have a discussion about some things about the end of time. However, when you uh, laughed and when you mocked and you just disturbed everybody, uh, you weren't acting kindly, you weren't acting graciously, and basically you ruined the entire two hours for everybody, because even when you were gone, nobody got anything out of that. So. Three points we need to remember going into tonight. The first one is that, like I have a desire to know and ruin uh, stories for myself, um, we as Christians have a deep and abiding desire to know how things are going to turn out. Um, and this has been throughout Christian history. We know that in the end, all will be well, that Jesus wins, that we will be with him, but we desire to know more details than that. And we need to be aware that, in some of these cases, the answer might be a mystery, that there may not be an answer that satisfies us, and we have to be okay with that, first thing. The second thing, when we read, or in my case, watch, uh, things about the uh, end of times, uh, it should not fill us with fear, but with hope and joy. And if we read Daniel or Revelation, Or uh, if we're listening to somebody read or exposit them, preach through them, and it's filling us with terror, something's amiss. Mm -hmm. And it might be that the Holy Spirit is using that to prompt us and be like, you're not right with me, you need to be right with me. That could be. Or it could be that, like I think the movie uh, was doing, it was just trying to use fear to get people to watch it. So just be aware of that. If we're feeling fear, something is not, uh, something is amiss. And thirdly, all of us, maybe not all of us, most of us probably have some very firmly held opinions about some of these things, and there's a good chance we're going to interact with people, maybe even at our tables, who disagree with us. So, be kind, be gracious to people that you disagree with. So, I've been talking for a bit to, to kind of get us uh, involved and kind of get a, especially if you don't know people at your table, to kind get of to, get to know them a little bit. Uh, here's a discussion question. So, what is your favorite movie, uh, book, story about the end of the world and why did you like it? So, discuss this for maybe three minutes. So, anyone wanna... <laughs> yell out your, your uh, favorite end of the world story, movie? Stand. The Stand by Stephen King. Yeah, that one was good. Terminator. Terminator. <laughs> I was debating whether or not I was going to bring that one up. That one's a good one. <laughs> all of them. All of the Terminator series. Left Behind. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit about that. In uh, somebody online uh, John said don't look up yeah that one that one was pretty funny for me I would say that I have two and one I'm almost reluctant to say because it was one of the worst movies I've ever seen uh, 2012 uh, it was so bad that it was inadvertently funny and I knew a couple of the people that were in it so but it was just one of the worst movies I've ever seen, but it was hilarious, it's so bad. Uh, the other one is a book, and it's The Last Battle by uh, C.S. Lewis, and it's the end of the Narnia series, and uh, just how he wraps it all up is just amazing. So, we're gonna be talking about the end of times, or the end of time today. And first of all, we need to realize that every worldview, every philosophy, every religion has a view on the beginning and the end of history, uh, and that every person actually has a view on it, whether they've thought it through or not. They live their life in such a way that they they believe in some kind of end uh, to history. Um, they either believe that, or they come to one of two conclusions: either that there is an end, or that there isn't. And so we'll look at these two kind of overall competing views. And the first one uh, is that history doesn't have an end. And under that, there are two kind of large subheadings. One is that you can view history as a circle. One of my favorite uh, book series at least for the first six books is a series called The Wheel of Time and uh by a man named Robert Jordan and the idea is that history is just this ever-repeating circle that goes around so what happens will eventually become myth and legend and then until the wheel comes back and then it becomes what is currently happening and that's actually, the idea Robert Jordan took it from is from Hinduism and because the Hindu concept of time and the origins of the universe is that one has no beginning and no end, that there is no beginning and no end of the universe, it goes backwards infinitely and it goes forwards infinitely, you can have beginnings and ends, but not a begin, not the beginning and not the end. The Buddhist view is very similar. Uh, The idea that the world is a vast flow of events that are linked together and participate in one another, and therefore there cannot be a first cause. There can't be somebody that started the whole thing going. There's no creation out of nothing in in the Buddhist view of the universe, as there is in the Judeo-Christian view of the universe. And since the universe has neither beginning nor end, they see it as cyclical. Science has something that it ends up looking very cyclical. And uh, most scientists would agree that the universe started with the Big Bang. What they don't agree with is how it's going to end. And one of the scientific views is called the Big Crunch. It's not just a chicken burger from KFC. <laughs> so the idea being that the universe has expanded. Uh, it starts at the Big Bang and expands and it keeps expanding and eventually there will come a time if there's enough um, matter and energy in the universe where, will, where gravitation will take over and the expansion will stop and it'll slowly start to contract and get faster and faster and over trillions of years eventually end up where we began at the singularity that started the Big Bang. And So then the theory is that maybe we have a universe that just keeps exploding and contracting and exploding and contracting. So, that's history as a circle. Another view is that history goes on forever, that there is a definitive beginning. And we see this with Aristotle, that he believed there was a definitive beginning, and he talked about the unmoved mover, that there was some kind of first cause that started everything going, but that because the universe was eternal, there would be no end, it would just go on forever. Some later Christian philosophers took this unmoved mover to be, uh, to be God. But Aristotle did not look at it that way. He just looked at it as, an, as a first cause, and then everything just stays the same forever. You can make changes, but everything ends up kind of being in this steady state. Science has a view of this as well. It's called heat death the idea that the Big Bang started and everything's expanding, but in this view, there isn't enough stuff in the universe and everything will just slowly get farther and farther away from each other, it'll all cool down and in trillions of years, all that will be left is this uh, very, very cold soup of subatomic particles. So that's some views of history not having an end. We look at history having an end when I was younger, I liked three things. I liked pirates, I liked dinosaurs, and I liked Vikings. And so the Viking view of the end of the world was that of Ragnarok. So uh, it would start with this really, really cold winter that would devolve into chaos and looting and everyone would start fighting each other. And eventually you would get the pantheon of gods. You'd get the good gods fighting the evil gods and everyone would die, the end. Now, some Vikings are like, oh, that may not be the end. Maybe there's rebirth after that. But a lot of the Vikings are like, nope, that's it. We just, we we end up fighting in the end and dying, and that's it. There's, uh, so, so the word apocalypse, um, there is actually a theological definition of that that we'll get to in a bit. But our modern definition of apocalypse would be if not the end, an end, an end to civilization, an end to the earth. And so there's a number of views of what this could look like. Uh, The first one would be uh, human-caused apocalypses. So nuclear war, uh, pandemic ending everything, uh, climate change, the Maple Leafs winning the Stanley Cup. (laughs) (laughs) Never happened, David. (laughs) We're safe. The other thing would be apocalypses that are outside of our control, and so I put ELE there and that's a short form for extinction level event, so a giant rock from space slamming into the earth, or maybe the sun um, knocking out all the electronics uh, on earth, uh, either of those would just be devastating. Uh, There's a scientific view called the Big Rip, which is the idea that if everything is moving faster and faster away from each other, eventually all the other galaxies will move so far away we can't see them, and then it'll be all the stars in our galaxy, and then it'll be the Sun, and all the other planets, and eventually the Earth itself will rip itself to pieces. Yes, (laughs) happy ending. Or Aliens. My uh, favorite movie, I almost put Independence Day but it wasn't really an end-of-the-world movie, so. And finally, we get to Christianity, and this is where we're going to camp the the rest of the night. Um, And I put here the true myth, and that actually, that that idea of true myth originates with both C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, and I think I get fined every time I don't bring them into a class that I have, so uh, here we go. C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, they, they were discussing this, and they were talking about, um, they were talking about myths in the past, so like Roman and Greco, or Greek myths, and, and how these stories, they kind of, they, they kind of stirred at the heart, and uh, C.S. Lewis is talking about this, and he hadn't become a Christian yet, and Tolkien's like, yeah, and that's, that's the true story, like these are all shadows of the one true story, God's story, it's, it's mythical, Like these other ones, the big difference being that it's true. It actually happened. God actually entered into history. He actually interacted with people. He actually performed miracles. And like every good story, God's story has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. And so we can see the beginning, we see that in Genesis, and we see the problem in the story, which is sin, and so, uh, Tolkien and Lewis were talking about this, they're saying, so clearly there needs to be an end where sin is dealt with. And their view is that sin was either dealt with uh, a complete destruction of everything that was affected by sin, and this is Tolkien's view, um, or it was God removing the sin from, from his creation. Either way, we end up with a creation, either one that's been destroyed and then remade by God or one that has been had the sin removed from it. We end up with a creation that is sinless at the end. And I like this uh, quote from Tolkien. I am a Christian and I do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat, though it contains and in a legend may contain more clearly and movingly some samples or glimpses of final victory. So this is his view that the only uh, reaction that, that sin will cause in the end is destruction of everything that has been infected by it and a remaking of it by God. Okay, one thing we need to do is define our terms. We're going to be looking at a lot of things, and some of you may not be aware of some of the terms that we're looking at. So, the first term, and I think I've already used it a couple times, and if you don't know what it means up until this point, I apologize, but uh, the term is eschatology. And eschatology simply is the study of the last things. Uh, The Greek word or the Greek phrase ta eschata basically means last things, so eschatology is the study of the last things. The second thing is apocalyptic or apocalypse. Because as we said the way our society views it now, it's uh, an ending of society or an ending of the world. That's what apocalyptic means, but From a theological perspective, that's not what it means. The original definition of apocalypse was uh, a a revealing And So when we consider apocalyptic literature, especially the books of Daniel and Revelation, uh, what is being revealed is that the story is bigger than anything we expected, that we see things happening on earth, and then God reveals through the apocalyptic literature that there's stuff happening in the spiritual realms that is affecting what's happening on earth, and we would have never seen these things on our own. So it's a heavenly view of earthly situations. Uh, Millennialism, that's an important term that we're going to uh, come across a number of times tonight. (coughs) Pardon me. And it's the thousand-year reign of Jesus that's mentioned in Revelation 20. And there's various views of what this looks like. We'll look at it more in depth in a bit. But basically, it's either it's happening now, uh, or it's going to happen in the future, or it's just imagery. And finally, a quick definition of prophecy, and I say quick because we, honestly, we could talk about prophecy for weeks on weeks and weeks, um, but a quick definition of it is that uh, it's primarily uh, foretelling, so reminding people of God's covenant, and then foretelling, telling them what will happen if they don't abide by the covenant or when they break God's covenant. That's a good chunk of prophecy in the Old Testament. And Gordon Fee makes a comment about this. To see the prophets as primarily predictors of the future uh, is to miss their primary function, which was to speak for God to their own contemporaries. So now there are other prophecies that uh, didn't have to do with that. There are prophecies that point towards Jesus, both his first and second coming, and other prophecies that deal with other things. But the vast majority of them are forth and then foretelling. So. The end times, the topic of that is something that Christians have struggled with pretty much since the beginning. And uh, I fancy myself an amateur historian, so obviously we're going to go through a little bit of history here. So, a very, very quick history of uh, Christian eschatology. We're going to start with a guy named Irenaeus, and Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, And Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John, so Irenaeus is basically one generation removed from the Apostles. And he helped codify this idea of the millennium. And he believed that as creation had six days with a seventh uh, ending uh, being the day of rest, that so creation would have six millenniums with the seventh millennium being Christ's reign on earth. And the reason he thought this was so important uh, was twofold. And first of all, it combated a group of heretics called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics believed that uh, creation was bad, that matter was bad, that our bodies were bad, and that in the end everything would just be spirit. And Irenaeus uh, needed to combat them because he's like, well, why did Jesus become incarnate? Why did he take on flesh and dwell among us? If creation is bad, God would not have entered into creation. So creation is good. Therefore, this thousand-year reign reinforces that. And secondly, at this point, all of the apostles, except for John, had been martyred. A number of other Christians had been martyred. And Irenaeus believed that uh, that the thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth um, was tied to God's justice. That because so many Christians had lost their lives within creation, that God would restore creation to them in a perfect form. We go forward a couple hundred years and we get to two people, uh, a guy named Jerome and a guy named Augustine. And Jerome believed that revelation was complete imagery, that it needed to be read spiritually and that the thousand-year kingdom did not refer to an actual kingdom, but it referred to the obedience of the church and that any of this imagery about beasts or about antichrists, that didn't actually refer to people. What it referred to was our, the churches struggling with sin in their lives. And that, for instance, when it talks about Satan being bound in uh, in the pit, that's not actually Satan being bound. It's Satan being bound when we obey God. And so, he popularized Revelation as timeless and spiritual truth. And this is in contrast to Augustine, who believed that the thousand years was an actual literal uh, kingdom on earth and that it had already started. He believed that the thousand year reign had started with the first coming of Jesus. And that people entered into this kingdom by the first resurrection, which he believed was baptism. And then the second revelation, or second resurrection, was the bodily resurrection at the end of time. Go forward a few hundred years and we get to a guy named Wacom Fiore. And he was special because, special, he was uh, unique because he was one of the first theologians that postulated that the various visions in the book of Revelation actually referred to uh, past and present people. And so, for instance, uh, you see the seven-headed beast in Revelation 13, and Wacom's like, okay, so clearly, because this beast is opposing God's people, each of these heads refers to somebody else. So clearly the first head would be Nero, because, the Emperor Nero, because of the Emperor Nero was the first real um, uh, opposition to Christianity. And then, you know, maybe the second one was one of the other emperors that killed a lot of Christians, so Domitian, or maybe Diocletian. And he had some ideas for some others. There was a couple anti-popes in there. And then number five and six, he was like, Well, Muhammad has been really, really bad. Like, Islam has been really, really bad for Christianity. So clearly, head number five is Muhammad, and head number six is this guy named Salah Adin, who's a general who had conquered, uh, reconquered Jerusalem from the Crusaders. So he's like, Well, that's terrible, so clearly he's head number six, and we're, all we're doing now is we're waiting for head number seven, who will be the Antichrist. We go forward a few hundred years, and we get to a guy named Martin Luther, and Martin Luther actually changed his view on Revelation a number of times uh, over his life. Uh, At first, he fully rejected it. He thought that the book of Revelation was useless, and if it hadn't been already at the end of the Bible, he would have pushed it further to the end. Except for the book of James, he hated that even more and he put that at the very end. <laughs> but he thought it was useless. And then as time went on and he uh, started to experience a, a lot of persecution from the Catholic Church, he, he started to change his mind. He was like, no, you know what? I think a lot of this opposition, like the beasts and the Antichrist, clearly they refer to the Catholic Church and specifically the papacy Other other theologians had identified specific popes or anti-popes with uh, heads of the beast, but Martin Luther is the first one who's like, no, it is the entire structure that is of the devil. It's evil, it's terrible, it needs to be destroyed. But ultimately, as he reached the end of his life, he believed that the the book of Revelation was intended to be a comfort uh, to the church in every area, every era, as it'll always face uh, trials and persecution. So, in the same way that uh, one of the reasons Revelation was written to the early church is because they were being persecuted by Domitian, and this was supposed to be to comfort them and to encourage them. Similarly, the church in his day, the the, the Protestants that were starting to uh, uh, rise up, they needed to be encouraged because they were being persecuted, and so this book was for them as well. We go forward to a guy named Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards was a preacher during the Great Awakening, which was a major revival in the mid-1700s. And he popularized a term called postmillennialism. And so, we'll get into that a little bit uh, more detail later. But postmillennialism is basically, he expected that the world would slowly be Christianized over the next 250 years. And so he hypothesized, and I mean, he wasn't making a prophecy about this or anything, but he's like, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if by the year 2000, the entire world is Christian, and that's when the Lord can return. That did not work out for him. (laughs) We get to a guy in the 1800s named Jonathan Darby, and Jonathan Darby popularized uh, premillennialism and dispensationalism, and I'll get to deeper definitions of those in a bit. But what's important is that these views were adopted by a guy named Cyrus Schofield, and he put them into the Schofield Reference Bible. And the Schofield Reference Bible is significant because if any of you have uh, study Bibles, NIV, ESV, um, New King James, or any of those as a study Bible, the Schofield Reference Bible was kind of the prototype of that, and it is super popular, and it was super influential, especially in North America. And finally, we get to uh, Tim LaHaye and uh, Jerry B. Jenkins, who wrote the Left Behind series. And the Left Behind series is based on premillennial dispensationalism. And it is possibly the most popular and profitable Christian media franchise in history. And uh, Jerry Falwell said this about it. In terms of the impact on Christianity, on modern Christianity, it's probably greater than that of any other book other than the Bible. So it's a very quick snapshot of uh, of eschatological history and this is going to be a very quick snapshot as well because there's far more than just three Christian views on history in the end, but these seem to be these days the most common ones that we'll encounter. And the first one is the Preterist view. And this is the view that most, if not all, uh, eschatological biblical prophecies have already been fulfilled. The latest ones being the ones tied to the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. So when you, uh, when we read Jesus uh, delivering these prophecies and saying, you know what, uh, if you see armies arrayed against the city, run to the hills. It'll be a difficult time for pregnant mothers and for uh, for women with young children. Um, this is what he's talking about. The Predator would say, yes, this and only this is what he's talking about. The destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Similarly, when you see other imagery in other parts of the Bible, apocalyptic imagery, they believe, the Preterist would generally believe, that it specifically refers to uh, a historical um, person or people. So, for instance, in the book of Daniel, you get this statue, and the statue is a golden head, and the predator would be like, yep, that is and only is the Babylonian Empire, and the silver chest is the uh, Persian Empire, and the bronze thighs are the Greek Empire, and the iron legs are the Roman Empire, and then there's some debate about what the feet are, the, the iron and clay combined. A lot of people think that's, well, clearly that's Christianity, because Christianity did not mix well with the Romans. But these would all be generally preterist views. The second major area that we'll encounter is dispensationalism. And this view believes that history is divided into seven different eras or dispensations, and that in each of these eras, God works towards his final goal, but he works differently in each era. So he's always has the final goal in mind, but during each era, he's acting differently. And so fundamentally, for instance, he's acting differently between the fifth uh, dispensation, which would have been the law, which would have been uh, for the Jews, as opposed to the sixth, which is the era of the church, which is now. He acts fundamentally differently, but still with the end goal in mind of the restoration of, of humanity The and... Um, Is coming again, and and all the things that we believe in terms of um, eschatology. And I get the fact that I went through that incredibly quickly, that both preterism and dispensationalism is far more uh, detailed than that, but we don't have enough time to do justice to all these things. So, Uh, The last one is partial preterism, and what partial preterism does is it kind of cherry-picks from both preterism and dispensationalism and kind of mixes them together. So some of the things that part of the partial preterist view uh, holds is that there is fulfillment in the past, kind of like the preterists. There is fulfillment in the past. So looking at these um, uh, prophecies that Jesus made regarding uh, the city of Jerusalem, that clearly was for uh, the Christians, so that they would be aware what was going to happen when the Romans invaded and destroyed Jerusalem. But some of these prophecies may have what's called dual fulfillment, which is that they might have a fulfillment in the past, but also an ultimate fulfillment in the future and so who knows maybe the warnings that Jesus was giving to the Christians um, who lived in Jerusalem and telling them to flee when the Romans arrived, maybe those are also warnings that will be to the church in the future. Historical context is important to uh, partial preterism, uh, understanding the various prophetical texts within historical and cultural contexts, and generally they view Revelation as symbolic. So interpreting the book of Revelation, um, it's often the view that the apocalyptic language and imagery uh, are symbolic representations of historical events rather than literal descriptions of what's going to happen in the future. Okay. I've been talking for a while now, I need to have a drink of water, but uh, while I'm doing that, uh, discuss in your tables uh, what is your view, if you have one, of what the end of the world will look like. You can go into some of the stuff we've talked about already, or uh, if you want to expound on a different view, go ahead, just once again, be kind with each other, be gracious with each other. We'll do this for about five minutes.
1: Sorry, I turned the mic off there.
0: (laughs) All right, hopefully your discussions were good. In a little bit we're going to get to four different points and I get the fact there's way more than four areas where people have disagreements um, about in terms of eschatology and unfortunately there's a whole bunch I needed to cut for time but four we're going to look at and I think there's a number of us that are going to disagree on these. So we need to start in unity. First of all, I think reading 1st Corinthians 15 is important. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Okay, so first importance. The church throughout its history has come up with these statements called creedal statements, and basically what they state is the things that are of first importance, the things that bind us together as Christian brothers and sisters throughout all time, that if you're a Christian, at the baseline, this is what you agree to. There might be other things that we can disagree about, but this, these are the things that uh, we have to believe about God and about ourselves, uh, and that Christians have believed for 2,000 years. So, I think it important that we read one of these creedal statements. So, you guys can join with me if you'd like. We're going to read the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. All right. Now that we're all on the same foundational page theologically, look through that. What are... I picked out four. What are uh, the eschatological points within the Nicene Creed? Anyone? No, begotten not made, that's important, but it's not uh, something having to do with the end. The 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 resurrection of the dead, yes, that's one of them. The life in the world to come, yep, that's one. Judgment is one. And he will come in again in glory. Yep. That, that's tied into, uh, that's tied into judgment. But uh, his kingdom will never end is the fourth one that I, I picked out. So four things that are eschatological, uh, points that all Christians have agreed on. So let's just hold on to those and we'll uh, get to all of these near the end in a little bit more detail. But now we're going to look at four things that we might disagree on. The first thing we may disagree on is when will the kingdom of God arrive? Luke twelve, thirty-one to thirty-four says, But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom, sell your possessions and give to the poor, provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, and where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there where your heart will be also. So Jesus speaks a great deal of the kingdom of God, and in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven, um, throughout his time on earth. And it's interesting because he uses both future tense and present tense when he talks about it. So the idea that the kingdom of God is in the future, but it's also seemingly now. And so theologians have debated this for many, many years, and basically have come down to three different conclusions about it. The first one is the Futurist position. The Futurist position suggests that the Kingdom of God is largely a future reality. It is not happening now. It'll be at some point in the future, uh, yet to be realized, and it anticipates a literal fulfillment of the prophecies related to the Kingdom, including the return of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, and the establishment of God's reign on Earth, but that none of these have started yet. There's the realized position, which is the idea that proponents uh, argue that Jesus inaugurated and established his kingdom during his earthly ministry, and the fulfillment of eschatological promises are ongoing. The focus, therefore, is on the spiritual and the transformative aspects of the kingdom being experienced in the lives of believers today. This is a big view of Jerome. We talked about him during the, the little history blurb. And finally, we get uh, the inaugurated view, which uh, some have called it the almost but not yet view, and the inaugurated view falls kind of between the two uh, futurist and realized. Uh, It emphasizes the tension uh, between the present and future aspects of the kingdom, and it suggests that the kingdom of God has already been inaugurated with the coming of Jesus, but awaits a complete fulfillment in the future. The return of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, and the establishment of God's kingdom will be literally fulfilled. But other prophecies that seem to uh, may talk about the kingdom of God may have already been fulfilled. Okay, that's the first one. The second one is about the millennium. This thousand-year reign that we're going to read about. Revelation twenty one to 6, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the keys to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years." So, questions people had. Is this a literal thousand years? And if so, um, when will it occur? Because it does seem to be separate from the kingdom of God that we just looked at. So, the first one is the premillennialist view. And this one holds that Jesus Christ will return to Earth uh, before a literal thousand-year period of peace and righteousness. And it's strongly tied to a futurist view of the Kingdom of God and a dispensationalist view of history. This view often includes the belief in a rapture, which we'll get to next, um, where believers are taken into heaven by Jesus. And there will be a period of persecution and tribulation for those believers left on Earth. There are generally three subsets based on when people think uh, that uh, they, the Christians will be raptured. There's the either before the tribulation, in the middle of it, or at the end. The next view is called post and post-millennialism, which uh, we saw with Jonathan Edwards, uh, it suggests that the world will gradually become more Christianized through the spread of the gospel and through Christian influence in society. And after a long period of spiritual and societal improvement, Christ will return, and then the final judgment will take place. And it's strongly tied to a realized view of the kingdom of God. And it actually was quite popular up until world War, the end of World War One, And uh, you can kind of see why after World War I, especially World War II, this idea would kind of fall out of favour because the idea that uh, the world is getting better and better as Christians go out into it and influence it uh, stopped when you had all these ostensibly Christian nations, uh, especially Germany and, uh, and uh, Great Britain, uh, trying to kill each other. And finally, we have amillennialism, and amillennialism rejects the idea of a literal thousand-year uh, earthly reign of Christ. Instead, it sees the millennium as a symbolic representation of the present age, where Christ reigned spiritually in the hearts of believers. The return of Christ and the final judgment are seen as occurring at the end of the age, and this is often tied to a preterist view of history. So you can start to see that uh, these differing theologies, they're all tied together well, not all tied together, but each of them has ties to other ones. So, next thing we're going to look at is the rapture, and the rapture, the theology of the rapture is primarily found in First Thessalonians four fifteen to eighteen. Therefore, encourage each other with these words." There are two primary interpretations uh, of this passage. The first one is that it's to be read literally, that the church will literally be caught up into heaven or raptured into heaven to dwell with Jesus. And this may be pre, mid, or post tribulation, depending on one's view of other scriptures. And this particular view is usually closely tied with premillennialism. There's another view of this particular uh, passage of Scripture, and that it's imagery, that Paul was uh, evoking imagery, that the people that he was talking to would have recognized, because this imagery would have been closely related to uh, ancient Near East uh, imperial visits Uh, to the capital city after a military victory. So the king or the emperor, after he's victorious in battle, he would approach his city and at the very edges of the city, like even past the uh, city gates, uh, in the very edges, uh, would be the cemetery. And so he would pass through the areas of the dead first. And then, as he approached the city, the people of the city would stream out to greet him, and they would be jubilant, and they would greet him with, with cheering, and they would escort him into his city. It's interesting. When we uh, look at um, Palm Sunday, what, what did the people do for Jesus? They They streamed out of Jerusalem, and they were welcoming him in basically, as a conquering king, they were expecting him to inaugurate his kingdom and have it be a military military kingdom, because this is how you welcomed in military uh, kings and emperors that were victorious. And finally, after the king or the emperor was in the city, there would often be a great feast or a triumphal procession that would follow the king's entrance into the city. So, two uh, general interpretations of this passage in this way that, uh, first of all, Paul might have been using imagery to tell Christians that we will be celebrating the entry of our king uh, to the earth on earth. And so, being caught up into the sky is poetic imagery. Or, some people take that literally, that we in Christ will literally rise to greet our conquering king, the dead first and then the living. We'll meet him in the clouds and then escort him down to his city, which will be the earth, where he will rule forever. So, two uh, views on, on what uh, this particular passage means. And uh, I have Ivan de Silva to thank for uh, a lot of the, the second view. Um, he's done a lot of study on that. The final one we're gonna look at, and I know there's a whole bunch of ones that we missed, and if you have any that are really, really uh, burning in your mind, send David an email, and hopefully we'll... uh... (laughs) Yeah, David will answer them all. No, we'll uh, maybe get to it in the Q&A session on March 5th. The last one is the number of the beast. So Revelation 13, 18 says, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. Some translations say the number of humanity. And that number is 666. Some translations say 616. So what does the number refer to? Well, a number of people believe that if you use the Latin uh, or Greek form of uh, Nero, so Caesar Nero, which in Latin would be Kaiser Neron, you translate it into Hebrew, and then apply a particular um, um, literary technique called gematria, which is where you would take a Hebrew letter and you would replace it with a number. Then you either get six one six if you started in Latin, or you get six 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 if you start in uh, in Greek. And so the general consensus uh, among a lot of these is that the word is Kaiser Nero. Now, it might not be literally referring to Nero, because in the time that this was written, the Roman emperor was Domitian, and he was oppressing the Christians as well. But if you write in any form Domitian in the uh, letter that you're trying to send to the church, and it's found by the Romans, that's bad. So if you put Nero, well, he's been dead 30 years that's probably safe, and yet the Christians would know that it doesn't just refer to Nero, that it refers to Domitian and the persecution of the Roman Empire as well. So that's one interpretation. Another interpretation is if you apply dual fulfillment premise that, sure, maybe it refers to uh, uh, Nero, but Because it can also have an ultimate fulfillment, it might literally refer to somebody in the future, and maybe we can figure this out. And so, over the course of 2,000 years, there are many different uh, suggestions for who 666 refers to. There have been various popes, Uh, Mohammed has uh, come up. Uh, various American presidents and my favorite one is that people were absolutely convinced that it was uh, Ronald Reagan because his full name is Ronald Wilson Reagan. There are six letters in each of his uh, names and so clearly six, 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 it's got to be Ronald Reagan some suggested stalin some suggested hitler i was reading and some one of the uh um, commentators that i was reading suggested you know somebody had suggested henry kissinger and i tried to find more information about that because that seemed fascinating to me but i couldn't find any more information about that yeah anyway he's dead yeah Daryl Johnson, um, who's one of the authors that I I took some of the stuff that I drew drew together for this class, um, in his book, uh, Discipleship on the Edge, he suggests uh, a different alternative. Now, numbers in the Bible are significant. Seven is a number of completeness, as is three. Six is not quite seven, so six is a number of incompleteness. And so, when you take six and you apply it three times, what you're getting is a name that is completely incomplete. It is perfectly incomplete. And the way Daryl Johnson describes it is, is that this, because this applies to the Antichrist and his buddies the beasts, that they strive to be like God and yet in every single way they come up short. They are perfectly incomplete in their attempts to become like God. And so that 666, in a way, is almost an insult. That they try so hard and they fail so completely. So, final discussion time. We've talked about a lot of things. Some of the things I'm sure you might agree with and some you might disagree with. So, one or two questions. What encouraging things did you learn that you had not considered before? Or, what encouragement can you take from positions different from your own? So, we'll take, what time do we have here? 8:10. We'll take a few minutes uh, to discuss this, and then uh, we'll gather back together. So, Hopefully your discussions were not too fraught with uh, with angst. uh, I've heard lots of stories uh, about churches and friendships that have been torn apart by disagreements on these things and It's really important that we don't be uh, We don't aren't divided by them even if we disagree So To end in unity We're gonna look at the four things uh, that were in the Nicene Creed uh, that we all agree on. First of all, uh, we believe that his kingdom will have no end. We believe that Jesus will return and inherit the earth. In Revelation 11:15 The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever Jesus came he died he rose he went home he's coming back and he will rule all when he returns and he will put right all the wrongs and we who are faithful will be at his side we believe that Jesus, when he returns, will judge everyone. Revelation 20, 11 to 15, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the Book of Life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found written in the Book of Life was thrown into the lake of fire. The Babylon Bee is the satirical uh, news source that's generally, uh, well, not generally, that's Christian focused. And about six or seven years ago, they did kind of this uh, one-page article, and it says, man who says only God can judge me suddenly realizes with terror that only God can judge him. And one of the more ironically terrifying phrases, and it was a lot more popular in the late 90s and early 2000s, it, it was that, only God can judge me. Um, it was really popular with a lot of uh, uh, rappers, and I'm pretty sure it started with Tupac Shakur. I did a little bit of looking, and he had a, uh, a rap song that was completely revolving around the phrase, only God can judge me now. And I don't recommend you look at it because there is so much swearing in it. but. <laughs> The idea is that he would say like all these terrible things that he did, but only God can judge me all these terrible things that he did But only God can judge me and he was murdered in 1996 So God is judging him What we do on earth matters and it will be weighed and measured by him who judges justly both the living and the dead will be judged and only those written in the book of life, those who are saved by Jesus, will be saved. We believe in the resurrection of our bodies. First Corinthians 1551 to 55. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep Now I would say of the four that we're we're looking at here, this one in the last uh, two years has really hit me the hardest. Uh, So in um, mid-2022 in August, I found out that I had cancer. And uh, they removed my kidney in September. And God be praised, it looks like they got it all. The subsequent tests have been negative. But in doing so, man, Things don't work the same anymore, things don't work well anymore, and uh, I am in constant discomfort, if not constant pain, and that's just what I have to live with. And the fact of the matter is that I know almost everybody, if not everybody here, has experienced something similar, or has had a friend or a loved one experience something similar. And so when we read of our resurrection bodies, when God fixes everything, I look forward to that so much. And finally, we believe in life everlasting with our Lord. Revelation 21 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on on the throne said, I am making everything new. And so as we end, we say with the church universal, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. I'm gonna close in prayer. Lord, yes, come quickly, please, we beg you. We thank you for the hope that you have given us, Lord, when we look at uh, these passages and we see that in the end all will be well. That you will set all wrongs right, that you will make everything new, and that we will be with you forever. God, we look forward to that day. And I thank you for my brothers and sisters here tonight, both in person and online. And we just ask God that you would use the hope that we have um, just to be an impetus for us to not only um, um, be an encouragement to others, but to go out into the world and to tell them about you and the hope that you offer, Lord. We pray all these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.